Good morning. So that's May 16th. Um, if you're someone who's found us kind of mid-pandemic here, um, what Libby just talked through is actually going to get us back to like our pre, pre-pandemic normal, which is that our kids join us in the sanctuary at the start of the service for worship. And then there will be children's ministry, all three services, all ages. Now you won't have to register your kids. And so you'll come in, we'll worship together at the start of the service, and then we'll dismiss our kids back to their classes kind of as we transition into whoever is teaching coming up here. Um, If you're um, part of the reason that we are doing this this way, we didn't make all the changes today, is because we needed a couple more weeks here to allow our children's ministry to have volunteers and teams in place that could make sure that at all three services we're good to go in the future. And so if you are someone who would be interested in, available to help volunteer, um, reach out to Libby or Catherine um, and let them know that because we could still use a few people to kind of fill some spots, not necessarily at this service, um, just kind of across the board. And if you're interested in that, Libby and Catherine would love, love, love to have a conversation with you about that. But May 16th, those changes will happen. And then we'll be masks still, but we will be like really kind of trucking forward to getting back to pre-pandemic life here on Sunday mornings, which all of us are, are really looking forward to. Sound good? Awesome. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into Luke chapter 8. God, thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, for the chance to gather together as a church family and to sing uh, the truth that your love has awakened us. God, it is uh, a gift of your grace that we would ever come to realize that we are sinful and need a Savior. It's a gift of your grace that we would see that Jesus is sufficient, the only thing sufficient to be that Savior. It's a gift of your grace that we would place our faith in him and that your grace would save us. And in all of that, God, you have awakened us to the truth of who you are and the beauty and the glory and the wonder that it is that we can be saved thanks to Jesus. God, I want to pray specifically for our time together here um, God, would you help us to hear your word this morning, to hear it with hearts that are receptive, to hear it with hearts that Jesus describes as good soil. God, I pray that we would be a congregation who is receptive to your word, not just intellectually, but all the way into the core of who we are in our hearts, God, and that we as a congregation would be a church where when your word is planted, God, it bears fruit here a hundred times the seed that was sown, like Jesus says today. And God, we know that that is a work of you and your grace and your spirit. And so we pray that your spirit would be here among us. Do that work in us as individuals. Do that in us as a church collectively, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to I start this morning with uh, just talking to the men for a second. Ladies, you can listen. You don't have to like tune out, but... Guys, I'm going to describe something that's happened to each and every one of us at some point in our lives. You were doing something. You were watching something, working on something, thinking about something. You were thinking about nothing because you had scheduled time to just think about nothing. And the uh, important woman in your life, mom, wife, girlfriend, fiance, sister, whatever it was, started talking to you in the middle of that thing. And you started just uh ahing and okaying everything that they were saying. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. The conversation got over. Ten minutes later, you panicked. Did I commit to something? What was everything that was just said? What did I uh uh-huh and what did I okay? And then some more time passed and the significant woman in your life said, hey, did you do? And bing, there it was. I okayed that. And then I didn't do it. And you thought to yourself, I also can't use the excuse that I didn't hear you because I've tried that before. But I, because I know I said okay. I know I uh huh. I uh huh that thing. Uh, we, most, the women all morning have laughed hard at that and like elbowed spouses because that selective hearing is something that we all do, but uh, I think men are maybe a little bit more prone to it. Jesus is going to say this morning in this parable of the sower that when it comes to hearing the word of God, we're not just selective hearers. It's actually, it's actually tougher than that. 
It's that hearing the word of God is a real spiritual battle and there is a real enemy in that spiritual battle who is actively working to not just distract you, but to take the word of God and actually steal it away. That's what Jesus is gonna say this morning, that when you walked in here today to hear the word of God preached, you walked into a spiritual battle that isn't like the, the kind of like, picture of spiritual warfare that we have in mind. It's something much more mundane than that, and it centers around hearing, and hearing the word of God. So the main point this morning is this, that hearing the word of God is a battle against Satan, the world, and our flesh. And we'll see that as we work through this parable. This week and next week, the sermons actually tie together very closely. Over the course of these two weeks, we're going to work with verses 1 all the way down to 21. This morning, we're just going to focus on the first 15 verses, but I'm going to read the whole passage this week so you can see the whole thing, and we'll read the whole passage next week as well. So if you've got Luke open there in front of you, I'm going to start in Luke chapter 8, verse 1, and I'm going to read down to verse 21. This is what it says. Afterward, he, that's Jesus, was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary called Magdalene, seven demons had come out of her. Joanna, the wife of Chesa, Herod's steward. Susanna and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. As a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to, Jeru- or to Jesus from every town, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds of the sky devoured it. Other seed fell on the rock. When it grew up, it withered away since it lacked moisture. Other seed fell among thorns. The thorns grew up with it and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground. When it grew up, it produced fruit, a hundred times what was sown. As he said this, he called out, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. Then his disciples asked him, what does this parable mean? So he said, the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given for you to know, but to the rest it is in parables, so that looking they may not see and hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. The seed along the path are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the seed on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. Having no root, these believe for a while and fall away in a time of testing. As for the seed that fell among thorns, these are the ones who, when they have heard, go on their way and are choked with worries, riches, and pleasures of life, and produce no mature fruit. But the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who, having heard the word with an honest and good heart, hold on to it, and by enduring, produce fruit. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a basket, or puts it under a bed, or puts it on a, but puts it on a lampstand, so that those who come in may see its light. For nothing is concealed that won't be revealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known and brought to light. Therefore, take care how you listen. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away from him. Then his mother and brothers came to him, but they could not meet with him because of the crowd. He was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. But he replied to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God. Here's how we're going to do this. Verses 1 through 3 are kind of a a separate little section. They're there and they give some context for when it is that Jesus gives this parable. But there's something important for us to see there. So we're going to work with those separately first. Then we're going to take verses 4 through 15. That's the parable of the sower and its explanation. But we're actually going to start in the middle, verses 9 and 10. Because in that middle chunk, Jesus tells you why it is that he uses parables. Then we'll work with the parable, and then we'll talk about what that means for us today in some practical ways that we can hear well when we hear the word of God. Verses 1 through 3. Jesus has just had this interaction at the Pharisee's house from the end of Luke chapter 7, where this woman are from... Yeah, the Pharisee's house, this woman comes, she's got this jar of ointment or perfume and she's weeping over Jesus and she's anointing his feet with this perfume and the Pharisee is totally befuddled by it. Jesus leaves there and we're told that he's going town to town, village to village, preaching the word of God. It's important to note that at this point in Luke's gospel, it seems like everything has just moved like this thing and then this thing and then this thing and then this thing, like all this could happen in a number of weeks or something. We're months into Jesus's ministry, potentially over a year at this point. Jesus is just about in Luke chapter nine at the end to set his face toward Jerusalem and he's gonna begin the journey 
to there and ultimately to the cross. This period of time, the kind of the name, the renown, the interest in Jesus has really been starting to grow and large crowds are coming to be near to him. But there's this group that's traveling with Jesus and that's what you're told in Luke 8 verses 1 through 3. That group includes the disciples, the 12, the apostles that Jesus has set apart and it includes this group of women. I mentioned this at the very start of the Gospel of Luke. One of the things that Luke does repeatedly is that he sets up accounts or he sets up the entirety of his Gospel to be these constant reversals of what a reader would have expected at that time and then what they're reading about Jesus. And so if you just think about some of the things that have happened in the Gospel of Luke up to this point, there are tax collectors and sinners who are being called to follow a Jewish rabbi and teacher. That's unthinkable to the people at this time. Jesus touches a leper and the leper becomes clean rather than Jesus becoming unclean. That's a huge reversal. It's unthinkable in that day. Pharisees are being confronted and told that they're wrong by another Jewish teacher. Unthinkable at that time. The Messiah has come. That was something that they expected. But he's come as this poor itinerant preacher who was born in the middle of nowhere as a lowly and vulnerable baby? No way. That's unthinkable to a Jewish reader. A physical resurrection, a physical resurrection of the widow's son, but this is going to end with the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? Unthinkable. And one of the things that Luke wants you to see throughout his gospel is that Jesus goes head on at the sort of culturally, societally accepted view of women, and he's flipping it, up, flipping it on its head. Women are central to the life and the events and the ministry of Jesus the Messiah. Unthinkable. But when you work your way through the gospel of Luke, this theme has been present since the very beginning. Elizabeth, who's beyond childbearing age, is told that she's going to give birth to a son, and that son, John the Baptist, is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. Then Mary, a teenage virgin, is the one who gives birth to Jesus. Anna, this elderly prophetess at the temple, when Jesus, after his birth, is brought there to be presented at the temple, she is one of, a woman is one of the first people to recognize the truth of who this baby is and to worship him. A widow who would have been ignored in that society, completely like unseen, not only garners Jesus' attention, but arouses his compassion and has her son raised to life. A prostitute who is used by men in that society, but also scorned by the exact same men that used her. She's defended by Jesus and held up as a model of what faithful response to Jesus' forgiveness looks like. Now we're told that there are women, three of them by name, but this group of women who are traveling with this Jewish rabbi and giving of their possessions to support his ministry, all of that is this huge reversal. It's unthinkable for a Jewish reader at this time. Luke wants to be sure that his readers see this, that Jesus is radically confronting and flipping on its head his day's normally accepted understanding of the importance and the role of women. People who study sort of like the apologetics, so like the truth of the Gospels, will often point to these types of details in the Gospels, not just Luke, but all four, as an apologetic um, legitimacy granter to the truth of the Gospels. Why? Because if you wanted to just write something and present it as true in that society, you would not include women as the first witnesses to the resurrection. Women weren't even allowed to be witnesses in court at the time. You wouldn't include women as being present with the ministry of Jesus. Women were not called to follow rabbis. That doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't have women who are present at the resurrection and not abandoning Jesus. It doesn't make any sense. You would position men in all of those roles because that is who is supposed to be in those roles. But the gospel writers, Luke specifically, wants you to see this flipping that Jesus is doing in all of these accounts. Luke wants you to understand that without the presence and the sacrifice and the giftings of women, the life and the ministry of Jesus would not have been possible. Elizabeth, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Anna, the prophetess, the widow, the prostitute, the poor, destitute 
widow later who's going to give from the little that she has in order to give at the temple. And Jesus is going to call that a bigger gift than any wealthy person has ever given. Like these women, we know something about Jesus because of their presence in these gospel narratives. We have Jesus present on this earth, come to bring salvation, bursting in with the kingdom of God in a broken world because of these women. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, we have the ongoing presence of Jesus's ministry because of the gracious and sacrificial support of these women. Luke doesn't want you to miss that. It's unexpected. It's backward to the rest of his society and his culture, but he wants his readers to see that. So it's not just that he says, hey, here were the people that were present when Jesus gave this parable. It's that he wants you to see women were making sacrifices to make this ministry possible. And that same truth is a reality today. That without the presence, the sacrifice, and the gifts of women, the life and the ministry of the church would not be possible. The history of the church up to this point would not have been possible. The future of the church would not be possible. And whether here with the way that God has sovereignly and providentially set it up with the very birth and life of Jesus, or today with the way that God has sovereignly and providentially worked within his church, this is the way that he's orchestrated it according to his will and his good plan. That he gifts his people, all of his people, with his gifts so that they can do his work for the sake of his glory in his world on behalf of his gospel until he comes back again. That is to be celebrated by the church, held up, pressed forward, that women have all of these spiritual gifts, the whole list of them as presented within the scriptures, and they are to use those for the edification of the church and for the proclamation of the gospel. That's the way God wants it to be. Luke doesn't want us to miss that reality. When you look at the church today, like 55 to 60% of the church is female in America. When you look at who does like the ministry and the service within the church, that number skews even further toward women. There's one sermon in there for men. There's another sermon in there to celebrate the work that God does through his people, women, male and female in order to advance his kingdom. And that's something that Luke doesn't want us to miss. It's something that we should not gloss over as a church today. So Luke gives you that, wants you to see it. And then he says, it's in that context that Jesus gives this parable. A large crowd is there. They're gathering from all over in order to hear Jesus. And he offers a parable. It's not the first time Jesus has used a parable. In the gospel of Luke, we've already seen a parable about trees and the fruit that they bear. We've seen a parable about houses with different foundations, a parable about children who are playing like in a market area, singing songs, but people don't sing along or weeping, but people don't lament with them. Last week, we saw Jesus give a parable about two debtors and a creditor and who's gonna love the creditor more. This time, Jesus offers the parable of the sower and for whatever reason, the disciples say, hey, what's up with parables? What does this one mean? Can you help us understand? And Jesus quotes there, from Isaiah chapter 6. He pulls something from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And before we look at that, let me just lay a little bit of parable groundwork that will help us for the rest of the gospel of Luke. Parables are simple stories that are relatable, and they convey a spiritual point. Now, they're a little bit less relatable to us today because we're not an agrarian society. Our culture's a little bit different. But typically, when we read these parables, the point is right on the surface, And it's a point about the kingdom of God. Maybe it's about the king. Maybe it's about what the people of the kingdom of God are like. Maybe it's like what about how the kingdom of God functions. This is going to be about the word and how it produces God's people. Not every line of a parable, not every phrase, not every aspect of a parable needs to be parsed out and given some sort of allegorical meaning. When you read parables, you're looking for that one big point. And then you can take that away and hang on to that without having to stretch every aspect of the parable into some, well, this has to mean this, and this has to be this thing, and Jesus means this with this. Find the big point, and you can walk away and hold on to that. Simple, relatable stories with a spiritual point, that point being about the kingdom of God. 
So the disciples say, what does this particular parable mean? And Jesus says in verse 10, the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given for you to know, but to the rest it is in parables so that looking they may not see, hearing they may not understand. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Real quick context. Isaiah is receiving from the Lord his calling as a prophet. God is telling Isaiah, you're going to go and you're going to preach to my people. And this is how God says it. And he, that's the Lord, replied, go, say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. God is telling Isaiah, you're going to be a prophet. You're going to go and you're going to speak to my people, but don't get this twisted. They're not going to understand they're not going to hear. They're not going to see. They're not even going to listen. And they're definitely not turning back to me. And so Isaiah rightly asks, uh, how long do I have to do that? And in verses 11 through 13 of Isaiah chapter 6, God replies and he says, until cities lie in ruins, until houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate, and the Lord drives the people far away leaving great emptiness in the land. So the disciples asked Jesus, what's up with these parables? What does this mean? And that is the place that Jesus points them. That's the answer that Jesus gives. Why? He tells you at the start of verse 10, the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given for you to know, but for the rest it's in parables, that they might see our look but not see, hear but not understand. Jesus uses parables so that he might reveal and conceal his truth. The word of God does both things. Parables do both things. To those that God has chosen as his people, as his people parables reveal truth, truth about the kingdom of God. To those God has not chosen his, as his people, parables conceal the truth. But that revealing or that concealing is never just about surface level understanding. Just in the passage before this, at the end of Luke chapter 7, Jesus gave a parable, and the Pharisee understood it intellectually. Who's going to love the creditor more, the big debtor or the little debtor? And the Pharisee said, the big debtor. So intellectual understanding. It's not about intellectual understanding. It is about the heart's inward reception of the truth of God as the truth of God. The issue's never with being able to just grasp a parable's meaning. It's always with a willingness to receive its truth. And Jesus says here, the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to my people that they would know and understand. But for others, it's given that they might look but not see, hear but not understand. I'm going to quote John Piper a couple of times here because I think what he has to say about these verses from Isaiah and how they relate to this parable, I think it's really helpful. In regard to both God speaking to Isaiah and Jesus speaking to the people in parables, John Piper says this, in other words, time had run out for these people and the word of God was no longer effective to save them, but was only effective to render their hearts insensitive and their ears dull and their eyes dull. Scripture tells us that the word of God is always effective, that it never returns void, Scripture says. And that passage from Isaiah and Jesus quoting it here, the point is that sometimes the effective work of God's word is that it softens and draws people into salvation. But sometimes the effective work of God's word is that it actually hardens people's hearts is that there are those like the Israelites in Isaiah's day, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, who hear the truth of God, but it does not soften them toward repentance. It hardens them in unbelief. For some people, the effective purpose of the word of God is hearing, believing, and being saved. For some others, the effective work of the word of God is not hearing. It's not believing. It's not being saved. And so John Piper goes on to say this. Even when preaching the word of God does not soften and save and heal, it is not necessarily ineffective. This preaching of the word may be doing God's terrible work of judgment. 
It may be hardening people and making their ears so dull they will never want to hear again. There is judgment in this world, not just in the world to come. And oh, how we should flee from it. The way we flee from it, Jesus says, is to hear well. That's what the parable is all about. As Jesus' ministry begins to shift toward the cross, Luke's gospel has him using parables more and more frequently because the time is coming for Jesus' work on the cross where salvation and judgment are going to come together there and come out through Jesus, fall upon Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, he he who has ears, let him hear. He's not talking about ears. He's talking about what John Piper calls heart ears. He who has heart ears, let him hear. And so Jesus gives us the explanation of this parable. It's one of the benefits of this parable being early is that you can see how right from the mouth of Jesus these parables work and then apply that in future parables. So hearing the word of God is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle against Satan, against the world, and against our flesh. And so we're just going to line this parable up. The bottom explanation starts in verse 11. It works through 15. The initial giving of the parable is in verse 5. Uh, through verse 8. We're just going to line it up like Jesus does. In verse 11, Jesus says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Okay? The seed is the truth of God. And now when we say the word of God in this instance, we're not talking about someone who generally talks about God. We're talking about scripture. The words of God. When that seed is sown, Jesus makes it clear in the parable. The issue is never with the seed. It's not that some seed fell on the path, some fell on rocky soil, some in thorny soil, some in good soil, and the quality of the seed made a difference in the outcome. It's the hearer, the heart of the hearer specifically, that ends up being the issue. So long as whoever is preaching is holding out the truth of Scripture. Now, Other places in scripture make it clear that there are those who would preach, but they're taking the word of God and they're twisting it, either to fit their own agenda or to kind of tickle the ears of those who are listening. But here, Jesus is saying the actual objective truth of the word of God is always good. When that is cast abroad, the issue's never with the seed. The issue is with the hearer. God's word will be effective. It won't return void. It will save those who will be saved, encourage those who need to be encouraged, minister to those who need to be ministered to, convict those who need to be convicted, but it will also harden those who will be hardened. It will make ears deaf and eyes blind. And then Jesus works through the different kinds of hearers that there are. And so in verses 5 and 12, you get the first one, seed that falls along this path. And we're told in verse 12 that the seed along the path are those who have heard and then the devil comes and takes away the word. Like Satan himself steals that away. We don't talk a ton about Satan. We don't talk a ton about the devil. We want to lift Jesus high. But in lifting Jesus high, we also have to be honest about the fact that there is a real enemy. And Jesus says here, when the word of God is preached, that enemy is at work against that word of God, actively, presently working to snatch away that truth before it even has a chance to get into someone's heart. That's Satan. We're fighting a spiritual battle against Satan. Then the second soil, which is originally given in verse 6, it's explained in verse 13, is the seed that falls among the rock. And in verse 13, we're told that That rocky soil are those who, when they hear, they receive that word with joy, but they don't have any deep roots. So when a time of testing comes, they fall away. Life in a broken world is such that all of us are subject to the consequences of life in a broken world, the pain and the difficulty of that. And we're told that sometimes the word of God is preached, it's cast out there, the truth of God's word, seed is thrown out, And it appears that a person receives that. But then when a time of testing comes or a time of trial or a time of difficulty, it's then that you realize that seed never took deep root. It never actually sunk down. Might have been intellectually understood, but it never got all the way into the heart and transformed a person. Then there's a third kind of hearing. 
Jesus gives that one initially in verse 7. He explains it in verse 14. It's seed that falls among thorns. And those thorns, we're told, are the worries, riches, and pleasures of life. And the seed that lands in those places, they may receive that with joy at one point, but it gets choked out by their own flesh. You sit here this morning, you came in with stuff to do later, house project, kids' sporting activities. You came in here with work stuff on your mind or you came in with your own background of marriage challenges or parenting challenges or your own concerns or your own difficulties. And the word of God is preached, but those things of the flesh choke that word out. So when we hear We're fighting a battle against Satan himself, against the reality of living in a broken world, and against the reality of our own flesh. And then in verse 8, and explained in verse 15, Jesus says, but there is good soil. And that good soil are those who, having heard the word with an honest and good heart, hold on to it, and by enduring, produce fruit. The point of all of that, the point of that entire parable, is about the hearer, and the battle that wages inside of the hearer to actually listen to and not just intellectually understand, but internally receive the truth of God's word. It's a spiritual battle. Now, when we think of spiritual battle, we think of something that's like the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you've seen that movie. There's this big battle that takes place. You've got the white witch and her army on one side, and the white witch is in the like a chariot that's being pulled by a couple of giant polar bears. It's kind of weird. And then on the other side, you've got Peter and Aslan's army, and Peter's riding on a white unicorn, and he's got these centaurs next to him, and they're standing on opposite sides of this giant field. And the white witch says, I have no interest in prisoners. Kill them all. And Peter looks at the centaur standing next to him and says, are you with me? And the centaur says, to the death. And then they take off running across the field. They're like cheetahs and eagles and like all these weird looking creatures. I mean, it's like bizarre. But that is how we picture spiritual warfare, like revelation kind of stuff. Jesus says, when you sit down to do something as mundane as hear the word of God, you enter into that kind of spiritual battle where there is a real enemy. And that real enemy has said, look, I don't have time for prisoners. Kill them all. And the church is on the other side saying, I'm fighting this thing to the end of my time, to my very death. And those things clash together. And there you are sitting listening to a sermon. And it's way less sort of like glamorized than spiritual warfare is in our head. It looks like, am I focusing or not? Did I pray or not? Satan's actively working to make it difficult for us to hear. The very fabric of the world in a broken world is working against us in terms of being able to hear. Our own flesh and our longing for the pleasures of the world is working against our ability to hear. But there is good soil. And the point of the parable is not that 25% of the people are uh, path, 25% are the rocky, 25% are the thorny, and 25% are good. The point is that There's a real spiritual battle taking place, and when the word of God is cast abroad, that battle wages inside those who hear. One kind of final question, and then we'll do the practicals. Who's the sower? Certainly, in the days of Jesus, in this passage, Jesus is the sower in in this instance. He is preaching the word of God from village to village, town to town, we're told. He's walking around the area of Judea. Eventually, he's headed to Jerusalem. He's preaching the word of God and the reality of the kingdom. He's broadcasting the message to all that would hear. Today, that certainly happens anytime preaching occurs. So you go into a church or you listen to a sermon online and preaching is happening. There's a sower sowing seed. And the point of the parable is not that what really matters is the quality of the sower. Other places in the Bible talk about the quality of preaching and the importance of preaching and the task of preaching and how that should be handled. That's not what this parable is about. Now, is there preaching, good preaching, better preaching, really wonderful preaching, and then maybe like some bad preaching? Yes. But that's really a subjective thing. The word of God is 
always good. Sowing, so long as it's done according to the word of God, is always something to be thankful for. Hearing is the issue in the parable. But this sort of sowing also happens anytime you engage someone in a conversation about the truth of God and that turns to scripture. That could happen in your small group when you open up the word together. Could happen in a discipleship relationship, whether you're the discipler or the disciplee. It happens at Kids Point, back in our classrooms on Sunday mornings. It happens at Truth Seekers on Tuesday nights. It happens on Sunday nights at youth group when Adam or Erica or one of their volunteers open up the word with our students and speak the truth of God. They cast that seed out. It happens in D groups when our student small groups meet together with their leaders. It happens around your kitchen table with your spouse or with your kids. It might happen in your cul-de-sac or in your work environment or around your kids' sports teams when you have an evangelistic conversation that eventually shifts to the word of God and you're opening up the truth. And the issue's not with the sower and the issue's not with the effectiveness of the seed. What's at issue is hearing. And hearing the word of God is a battle against Satan, the world, and our flesh. When you walked in here this morning, you entered into a spiritual battle. It's not glamorous, but it's a battle nonetheless. And if we're to be victorious, it's going to require some effort. So I'm going to give you some practical kind of tips for hearing well. Um, These are going to be catered toward like a Sunday morning sermon environment, but they can be applied anywhere. And so know that as I work through them in relation to a sermon, you can use these in any any kind of setting where you're talking about or interacting with the word of God. The first one is the most important one. It's probably the most overlooked one. The first one is the one that would require the most like spiritual discipline type of action, and that is pray. You want to hear well? Pray. This is a spiritual battle, and the primary weapon is a spiritual weapon. And you have that weapon in your arsenal at all times. And that weapon is prayer. You wake up or you go to do your quiet time and spend some time in the word, pray before you get in there that you would hear. Students, you show up to youth group on a Sunday night, pray that you would hear. Parents, you drop your kid off at youth group, pray that they would hear. Parents, your kid grabs the keys and gets in the car to drive to youth group, pray that they would hear the word of God. Parents, you drop your kids off on a Sunday night, or I mean, you drop your kids off at Kids Point on a Sunday morning, pray. You drop your kids off at True Seekers, pray. You walk in here on a Sunday morning, pray, pray, pray that you would hear. Look, it is a gracious gift of God that anyone hears his word correctly, but sometimes, and this is the mystery and the wonder of who God is, he has chosen, he has preordained that the prayers of his people would be the means by which his will advances. You want to hear, you want your child to hear, you want your spouse to hear, you want your neighbor to hear, pray. And that could be the very means by which God has pre-planned in all of eternity to move their heart to good soil and to not pray is to totally neglect the fact that there's a spiritual battle waging or that you could have a role in the very will of God on behalf of his people and his kingdom. Pray that your unbiblical filters wouldn't interfere with what God's word has to say. Pray that your areas of internal disgruntledness wouldn't color who you think the sermon ought to be speaking to or what you think the word of God ought to say. Look, we all come in here with various things happening in our lives. I get up here with various things going on in my own mind and in my own heart and in my own life, a conversation from between services, something going on at a church-wide level, something happening in my own personal life. And those are the very things that Satan would want to use to snatch the truth of God away. And so we have to pray. I can't tell you how many times after last week's passage about the Pharisee, and I used the charts about what it looks like to walk with Jesus over a lifetime and have the gospel get bigger, but then I put the second one up there where it gets limited. Like that's a pharisaical heart that pretends or performs. I can't tell you how many times I had a conversation with someone over the last week via text or in person or via email where the person said, you put that chart up there about the Pharisees and I thought, these people need to hear this. And then you kept kept talking and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I think he's talking about me. Pray soft hearts that would hear the word of God in good soil 
Not have Satan snatch that thing away. Not have the cares of the world choke that thing out. Not just be shallow reception that maybe makes it into our head, but never into our hearts. And then ultimately, like Jesus says, into the fruit of our lives. Pray. And then, when you come in here, be intentional. Be intentional before the sermon. Be intentional during the sermon. Be intentional after Look, there are no mysteries here on Sunday mornings about what we're going to preach about. I ended this morning in Luke 8, 15. Where do you think I'm picking up next week? Verse 16. That's going to go through verse 21 next week. On March 16th, where do you think I'm picking up? Verse 22. That's not a secret around here. We're working sequentially. And you might say, I'm not 100% sure how far you're going to go next week, Tim. Well, we send it out on Tuesdays in the transit email. Or if you're just not sure, read for 10 minutes, and I promise you'll get further than where I'm going to get the next Sunday. And then meditate on that. And use that time of preparation as a doorway into prayer. And you're interacting with whatever that scripture or that passage is going to be. Pray that you would hear and receive the truth of God's word. That your heart and your mind would be open to what God has to say. That God would move you to obedience. That God would bring conviction into your life if needed. Pray for the person preaching. Pray for the other people listening. Pray. Prepare beforehand. And then when you come in, focus. Look, we're a distracted society. We've got very limited attention spans. We don't need help being distracted. We need help focusing. Set yourself up for success in that. Set yourself up for success by turning off your phone. Or if you're not comfortable turning your phone all the way off, just silence the notifications. Put it into airplane mode, possibly. You're thinking about preparing beforehand and being intentional and focusing during, and you're thinking, Tim, you don't know what it's like to get one, two, three, four, or five kids into the van and get them here on Sunday morning. Like, I'm just hoping they've got matching shoes or that they all made it into the van. Like, you don't know what that's like. And then we get in here, and we haven't had kids points. So sometimes we've got the kids in here with us, and you don't know what it's like to try to focus with my child over here on the iPad, and the iPad volume turned on at one point, or the video turned off, or whatever the case might be. Look, it, it is a blessing to have those children. It's a blessing to have them in here in service with us over the last year. And so you might miss little bits. That's okay. Help them here. Help yourself just kind of pick back up and focus back in on the sermon once you've been pulled aside in your attention. You're in the car on the way here, and you're like, Tim, sometimes it's like a fight raging in the vehicle on the way here on Sunday mornings. Great. Here, here's a great thing. Kids, we're going to pray. Fight over. You can pray the whole way here then, out loud, for the whole family, and so long as you're talking and praying, they'll try to be quiet. Maybe like poking each other silently back behind you, but that's fine. You just pray away. We're going to hear today. Let me give you another kind of insight into how it is that I put sermons together that might help you follow along on any given Sunday morning. In my head, when I'm preparing a sermon, what I'm hoping for, what I'm aiming at is a straight line from whatever that opening illustration is or whatever the start is through our text right up to the cross and then to an application. I want that line to be as straight and easy to follow as possible. Now, sometimes I listen to the sermon back on Monday or Tuesday or something, and I realize that that line was a little bit more like a roller coaster. There was like a loop in the middle of it at some point. But I'm aiming for a very straight line. That's why throughout the course of a sermon, I circle back to that main point so many times. One, the repetition is helpful for us all. Two, it should never be that hard for me to get back to that main point if I'm shooting for a straight line. I try to avoid rabbit trails the best I can so that if you do get distracted for a moment and then you get yourself refocused, you don't have to work super hard to figure out how did we end up over here. I'm aiming for a straight line. So while you're in here being intentional and focusing, try to find the straight line with me and walk it. And while you're focusing in here, if taking notes is helpful, take notes. If the screen and the slides is like distracting to you, just pretend there are no screens in here. Stare at me. <laughs> Whatever's helpful for you to be able to focus over the course 
of the sermon. And then afterward, be intentional and discuss. You want to really grab hold of what it was in a sermon, have a conversation about it. But don't primarily talk about if the illustrations were funny or if the story was good or if, you know, Tim tied everything together well. Talk about the seed, the passage. What was it that that day's scripture had to say? What were the takeaways? What were the application points? What was the big picture? Talk about it at lunch afterward or dinner that night. Do it with your family or with your spouse or with your children. Do it in your small group. Have a discussion with the person that disciples you or the person you're discipling. Journal, like prayer journal about it later. Later in the week, go back and look at your notes if you're a note taker. And then third, walk in obedience. The direction that God's word moves, if we're going to hear well, is from hearing, and then it's in our head. We can't stop there. It's in our heart, inward reception, and then it can't stop there, Jesus says. It's out into our hands and into our lives. It's transformational for us. How is it that you differentiate between the soils, Jesus says? One of them produces fruit. How do you know if hearing has happened? Fruit. Jesus, at the end of the big passage that we read all the way to verse 21, his disciples or someone comes to him and he says, hey, your mother and your brothers are here and they want to talk to you. And Jesus says, here's how you'll know who my mother and my brothers are. Those who hear and do the word of God. That's how you'll know. How will you know if someone has heard? They're going to hear it, head, heart, hands out into their life. And so walk in obedience. You want one like concrete takeaway this morning and prayer wasn't good enough for you? Here's another one. When you're interacting with scripture in a sermon, in your quiet time, in your small group, wherever, one thing from that passage that would be walking in obedience, write that thing down and then actually commit to doing it. This morning, that could be praying before you engage with God's word. We want obedience to be something that's just like joyful and easy and just like flows out of us. Like we hear a sermon, we read God's word, something bubbles up inside of us and then we're obedient for the rest of our lives. Sometimes God's grace is kind and it does that inside of us. Other times the way that obedience works is that we read God's word. It confronts our flesh and we've got to take disciplined obedient steps first. And the joy comes from being obedient on the backside. And it could be Months of obedience before you find joy in the act of that obedience. But walk in that obedience. Allow the Holy Spirit to take the word of God, to get it from your head into your heart, and then to transform you out into your hands. And sometimes he is gracious to do that and it is a piece of cake. And other times it takes disciplined steps of obedient action in order for that to happen. Next week, the sermon is gonna talk about that head to heart to hands process when we look at the rest of verses 16 to 21. Hearing the word of God is a battle against Satan, the world, and our flesh. You want to fight that battle well? Pray, be intentional before, during, and after, and walk in obedience. I'm going to kind of pull all this together. Brian, you guys can come on up. Think about verses 1 down to 15 with me really quickly. Jesus gives this parable, but before that, we're told that there's this group of people traveling with Jesus, the 12, the apostles, and these women who are supporting his ministry. Who are those people? They're good soil people. They've heard the word of God. Not just intellectually understood it, but they've heard it and it's moved into their hearts and you read the rest of the gospels. The disciples get it wrong sometimes, like laughably wrong. They're not perfect, but they're striving to walk in obedience. And you know they're good soil kind of people because of what God does after Jesus is ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit works through the disciples to produce a crop that is well over a hundredfold, works through these women that's well over a hundredfold. You're present hearing the gospel in America today because of the faithfulness of the disciples and these women and the early followers of Jesus. We think to ourselves, oh, it would have been so much easier then because they had Jesus right there in front of them. And when we think that, what we're displaying is we don't truly understand the power of the resurrection. Jesus goes to the cross, dies by grace, we can be saved, resurrects, and now his power is present within his people thanks to the presence of his spirit with them. So you interact with God's word, you're interacting with Jesus. And his power is inside of you to move you toward obedience. 
What grace? It is the grace of God that saves us and it is the grace of God that propels us forward in our relationship with Jesus at all points, making us desire to hear the word and to be obedient to it. We don't need to just try harder in order to be good hearers. We need to be gospel-dependent people, grace-dependent people who understand the presence of Jesus inside of us and God's gracious work that allows us to hear and allows that hearing to move head, heart, hands. Amen? Amen. We're going to worship together and then we'll pray to close. You can stand up. Jesus is going to say in other places, but the implication is there in this, that one of the worst things that can happen to a human being would be to stand before a sovereign and a holy God and realize that you, uh uh-huh, 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 okayed his word for the entirety of your life. R.C. Sproul, when I was reading about this passage, he said this, that it is possible to have the word of God in your head without having it in your heart, but it is not possible to have it in your heart without first having it in your head. My prayer for us as a congregation is that we would be a, a people who have God's word deep in our hearts. That when that seed is sown, that it finds fertile soil here at LCF and that we as individuals and we as a church collectively are a place where God's word produces a fruit a hundred times what was sown. And that that would look like people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to the ends of the earth coming to know Jesus. That that would look like people here in our own community coming to know Jesus. That that would look like a community of people who have a community of grace, not just a theology of grace. And that that community would impact this community in radical ways for the sake of the kingdom of God according to his plan and his purposes. Amen? I want to pray toward that end for us, and then we'll go. God, thank you for your word. What an amazing gift it is that you have revealed yourself to us, told us exactly who it is that you are. God, what a gift it is to us that you've told us what it means to be saved and what it means to be your people and what it means to walk in relationship with you. And you haven't left any of that up to a mystery. God, I pray that we would be a people who hear your word. God, that when we hear it, we understand it in our heads, we receive it in our hearts, and that it's transformational and that that works its way out through our lives and through the work of our hands. God, I pray for this particular sermon, that this would be something that we hear and we grasp, God, that we would be a people who pray and fight spiritual battle to hear your word well that we would rely on your grace and on your goodness to do that, God, but that we would enter into that spiritual battle intentionally every time we approach your word. God, I pray that we would be a people who individually have good soil kind of hearts. God, would you work that inside of us? God, I pray that we collectively as a church would be a place where when the seed is sown, on a Sunday morning, when it's sown in any of our programs, when it's sown in our homes, when we read our Bibles, God, that we as a church would be a place where your seed finds fertile ground and bears a crop for your glory, for the sake of your gospel, to the ends of the earth. God, would you do that work in us and through us as a church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. We'll see you guys soon.